I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Wednesday, President Trump made his first televised remarks about Bolton's ouster. He repeatedly criticized Bolton's support for the 2003 invasion of Iraq. And actually, in some cases, he thought it was too tough what we were doing. Mr. Tough Guy, you know, you have to go into Iraq. Going into Iraq was something that he felt very strongly about. So we're right now in for over $7 trillion into the Middle East. And I don't say it was his decision. You had a president and you had other people also, but he was very out there, I can tell you. We were set back very badly when John Bolton talked about the Libyan model, and he made a mistake. And as soon as he mentioned that, the Libyan model. What a disaster. Take a look at what happened to Gaddafi with the Libya model. And he's using that to make a deal with North Korea. And I don't blame Kim Jong-un for what he said after that. And he wanted nothing to do with John Bolton. And that's not a question of being tough. That's a question of being not smart to say something like that. John Bolton becomes the third national security advisor to be ousted by President Trump so far. Trump is expected to announce a replacement next week. President Trump is threatening to take military action after two major Saudi Arabian oil facilities were attacked Saturday by drones and cruise missiles. President Trump tweeted Sunday, quote, Saudi Arabia oil supply was attacked. There's reason to believe that we know the culprit are locked and loaded, depending on verification, but are waiting to hear from the kingdom as to who they believe was the cause of this attack and under what terms we would proceed, exclamation point. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo directly blamed Iran for carrying out what he called an unprecedented attack on the world's energy supply. Iran has denied responsibility. Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif tweeted, quote, having failed at max pressure, Secretary Pompeo is turning to max deceit, he said. Houthi rebels in Yemen claimed responsibility, saying it was done in retaliation for the devastating Saudi blockade in Yemen. But numerous reports indicate the attack may have have come from the direction of Iraq or Iran rather than Yemen. One of the Saudi plants struck is the world's biggest petroleum processing facility. Crude oil prices soared more than 15 percent after the plant suffered heavy damage. According to one estimate, the attacks decreased Saudi's daily output by nearly 6 million barrels, cut it in half. While the United States has been quick to blame Iran, other world powers have not yet assigned blame. German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas said Germany is still determining who carried out the attack. So this week we are talking with Gareth Porter, who is a foreign policy national security journalist. He wrote a book called The Manufactured Crisis, The Untold Story of the Iran Nuclear Scare that came out in 2014. And he's more or less an expert in this area. So I wanted to invite him on the show to discuss what's going on currently in our foreign policy. Welcome, Gareth. Well, thank you so much, Tina. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Uh, so obviously the big news this week is Bolton. He's out. Uh, yeah, this, this is good news, I think. This is huge. <laughs> yeah, so he's a neoconservative. He was one of the original architects of the Iraq War. Uh, I think he's more or less always sided on the side of the permanent war economy, etc. Uh, what are your thoughts on of him being gone? Well, I, this is the most important thing that's happened, obviously, ever since he joined the 
uh, Trump administration. And the reason is, uh, as you began to, to suggest in your introduction to the subject, uh, Bolton is not just a warmonger. He is somebody who has worked hand-in-hand very closely with the Netanyahu government to set up uh, a situation in which the chances of a military confrontation between the United States and, and Iran would be maximum. Now, you know, who knows exactly what Netanyahu and Bolton were hoping to get, but <laughs> we know that Bolton, uh, you know, was calling for bombing Iran for years and years after he left the uh, the Bush administration uh, around 2005, um, or maybe early 2006, can't remember exactly. And, and right up until the time he basically joined the Bush administration, he was still, you know, going on Fox News and saying we should bomb, bomb, bomb Iran. Uh, he made no bones about it. I mean, it was the most astonishing thing. And, and of course, he was also going for bombing North Korea, which which is even more astonishing in some ways. But so so the guy is completely out there. Uh, as as an out and out uh, explicit warmonger, and then you have Netanyahu, who um, you know threatened to bomb Iran a number of times uh, back in you know, ten years ago um, or, or thereabouts, um, 10, 000, uh, 2010, 2011, in 2012. Uh, I don't believe he ever really intended to do it, but he did want the United States to do it for him. And so, you know, that that's the background of this uh this pair of Netanyahu and Bolton working together to undermine any chance for uh basically peace between the United States and and Iran. And on the contrary, to set up uh this situation where uh the, the United States would, would pull out of the of the nuclear deal, uh begin to apply maximum pressure Meaning, uh, try to cut off all, not just most, but all of Iran's oil exports and put Iran in a situation where it had no, uh, foreign, uh, income to speak of. No, no income from its exports to speak of. And, and that was a formula which could only result in war, uh, because Iran is a modern state capable of making war. And, uh, and and a proud nationalist uh, nationalistic state, which will not bow to the United States in any case, and and which will inevitably resist in whatever way it can. And so so it was a formula that that absolutely uh, just just uh, guaranteed that there would be war between the United States and and uh, Iran eventually. So the fact that Bolton is going is is really the most important thing that should happen right now, the only thing that can save it, in my view, from from that uh, outcome. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, it's important, of course, that Trump pick somebody who will support uh, a policy of avoiding war with Iran. And, uh, you know, Doug, Doug McGregor, who's been named as one of the five people uh, on the list uh, for the White House to replace Bolton, is precisely the person who would do that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I urge people to watch carefully to see who uh, Trump is going to pick now, because if he does pick Doug McGregor, this will be very, very good news indeed. 
Well, so that's the real question here. Is Trump going to go back to his non-interventionist stances that he campaigned on, or is he going to keep going forward with this sort of neoconservative stance that he adopted midway through? And I think that's a really important point you're making. Um, I want to loop back around for a second. You mentioned something that I think is the centerpiece of neoconservative ideals, and that's that all of these countries like Iran um, if given the choice, would want to embrace our Western ideals. And I think that's insanely yeah. naive. It's just not reality. But this is what they've uh, sold the American public on time and time again, as far as coming from the uh, intellectual side of the movement, right? The academic side. And it's well, just simply not uh, yeah. true. Uh, it, it's, it's not true that, that Iran will bow down to demands by the United States. Yeah to follow its dictates. I mean, that much is crystal clear. And, and I, you know, that's the, that is the central theme, or one of the central themes, I should say, of my book, The Manufacturing mm-hmm. Crisis, because people are not aware of the real history of, of the Iranian nuclear program and the role that the Reagan administration played in the 1980s, in the early to mid-1980s, in essentially depriving Iran of this very innocent, uh, believe me, uh, totally innocent uh, effort to have a peaceful nuclear program, which was which they inherited from the Shah. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, the Iranians wanted to have a very much pared-down version of the Shah's nuclear program, in which Iran would not enrich uranium itself. It would have a French uh, consortium basically provide the fuel plates for their one nuclear reactor, the Boucher reactor, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they would go ahead with, with this program uh, without having any, uh, you know, any of the accoutrements that would go with a, uh, a nuclear program that could be used for nuclear weapons. But what the Reagan administration did was say, no, you may not have any nuclear program, despite the fact that Iran was absolutely entitled to that by the national by the non-proliferation treaty, the NPT, which they were one of the first members of, uh, and, and the United States was was completely violating the uh, NPT by standing in the way of of Iran being able to do that. The way they did it was to put pressure on both Germany and France to refuse to cooperate in any way, shape, or form with the Iranian nuclear program. And so the Iranians were given a choice, basically, of, of again, bowing down to the United States and uh, not having any nuclear program and, and sort of giving up their pretensions of independence, or, on the other hand, going to the black market and obtaining the technology that was necessary to, to enrich uranium themselves. And, of course, very predictably, they did the latter. <laughs> and so that's the, that's the origin of this entire nuclear crisis over Iran. But, but this, this bit of history has been excised from the, the history that is passed on from generation to generation by the news media and by various administrations. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. The news media is definitely complacent in manufacturing the consent around this. So you brought up Israel. Um, I want to talk about that for a second. Uh, the yeah. Nuclear Proliferation Treaty is something that Israel's never signed on to. And they Correct. have nuclear power. They have nuclear weapons. So, again, the United States is holding one standard to Iran, yet another to Israel, um, which I think is problematic. 
And, and second being a ge- <laughs> well, you know, it is. That's just being frank. I mean, obviously, the yeah. issues here are geopolitical in the sense that we're looking at oil economies, what we need in that capacity, uh, American empire, protecting business interests, etc. So very little of this has any rational um, or consistent application of thought, in my opinion. But recently, we've seen Israel entering into Syria. Do you think it's related? And where do you see that going? Just weeks before major elections in Israel that could determine the future of the embattled Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, President Trump has bowed to his pressure by declaring the U.S. will recognize Israeli sovereignty over the occupied Golan Heights in defiance of international law and decades of U.S. policy. Trump announced the move via Twitter. Thursday, writing, After 52 years, it's time for the United States to fully recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which is of critical strategic and security importance to the state of Israel and regional stability! Exclamation point. And Netanyahu responded to the news during a joint news conference with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. President Trump has just made history. I called him. I thanked him on behalf of the people of Israel. He did it again. First, he uh, recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital and moved the U.S. embassy here. Then he pulled out of the disastrous Iran treaty and reimposed sanctions. But now he did something of equal historic importance. He recognized Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. And he did so at a time when Iran is trying to use Syria as a platform to attack and destroy Israel. And the message that President Trump has given the world is that America stands by Israel. The Golan Heights area covers less than 500 square miles along Israel's northeastern border with Syria. Israel annexed the Golan Heights in 1981, after capturing the territory from Syria during the 1967 war. But the international community does not recognize its sovereignty. In November, the U.S. set a plan to vote against a U.N. resolution calling for Israel to end its occupation of the Golan Heights. The Syrian state news agency responded to Trump's vow to overturn decades of U.S. policy by saying it showed the, quote, blind bias of the U.S. towards Israel, and that his comments had shown contempt for international law and that they would not change the reality, quote, that the Golan was and will remain Syrian? Well, that's a very good question. To, to try to uh, straighten out, to, to get a straight uh, bead on exactly what it is that the Israelis are trying to do, it's not simple, uh, I can tell you that, um, because the Israelis are claiming their their uh, alleged uh, aim in in going into it's not just Syria but also Iraq and now Lebanon that that the Israelis are on this military rampage. I mean, this is the most uh, aggressive military behavior that any state has indulged in, uh, you know, in in the Middle East since the Israelis went into Lebanon in 2006. Uh, and and this rampage is being justified by the idea that they. They have to do this in order to prevent Hezbollah from obtaining what they call precision missiles, precision weapons. But, Garrett, these are folks that are claiming Hezbollah's in Venezuela, too. I mean, the comedy just writes itself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, look, uh, there is is a situation here where, where Hezbollah has gotten 
you know, not just hundreds, not just thousands, but tens of thousands of weapons from Iran over the years, starting in roughly 1999-2000. Why? Because the Israelis were threatening Iran, had threatened Iran repeatedly, openly, publicly. Uh, They they threatened that they were going to go after Iran's not just their nuclear program, but their missile program. That, that Iran must not be allowed to have any ballistic missiles that yeah. could possibly reach Israel. In other words, the Israelis were saying, uh, more or less openly, that Iran must not be allowed to have any deterrent. Mm-hmm. Because Iran has no air force, probably they were, they were not allowed to have an air force because uh, the United States imposed this uh, very strict economic uh, uh, right. blockade on them. Yeah. They couldn't, they couldn't get any spare parts for the Air Force, so they had to do their own ballistic missile program as their only way, they thought, of having a deterrent. But the Israelis said, no, you, you can't do that. So right. what did they do then? They started giving weapons to Hezbollah so that Hezbollah <laughs> could be their deterrent against the Israelis and, of course, ultimately against the United States as well. And so that has been the primary uh, way in which the Iranians and Hezbollah have been able to deter Israel ever since 2006. Now, the Israelis were not deterred in 2006, obviously. But since 2006, since they were defeated in Lebanon, the Israelis have been deterred for the first time since basically Israel was created. And and so this is a major factor. This is a huge factor in the politics of the Middle East now. Mm-hmm. And it's the one factor that has been stabilizing in the Middle East. Everything else has been destabilizing. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. When I say everything else, I mean what what all the Israelis have been doing and what the Americans have been doing and what America's other allies have been doing has been destabilizing profoundly. But what the Iranians have done to provide these weapons to Hezbollah has been a fundamental stabilizing force. And this is, again, the major story that is simply never alluded to by either U.S. administrations or by the news media. But it's terribly important. It's fundamentally important. Yes. And I agree with you. One man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. I mean, this is all about taking sides in a situation in which there really isn't a good guy, bad guy in terms of what is going on. It's foreign policy where one country is going to up the ante to protect itself, then the other one is being told they can't, so they find another means of right. doing so. And Absolutely. that means happens Absolutely. to be... Has, I, I think your assessment is completely right on. And that's uncomfortable, though, for a lot of Americans to hear because they've well, been told time and time that. again there's an evil person here, and that evil person... Is any one of these um, Islamic quote unquote terrorist states right? That's the that's the story that they've been given. Uh, that's right, and and of course, I mean the way this works, as you know very well, is that you know the lie is uh, started at one point. I mean, in this case, it was started you know in the Clinton administration about yeah. uh, Iran being a terrorist state that the world's major uh, sponsor, state sponsor of terrorism as well as, uh, you know, wanting to get nuclear weapons. And yeah. that lie has been repeated yeah, every is. month, every year, year in, year out, ever since then. Well, you know, over the years, pretty soon the lie begins to become so fundamentally, uh, you know, understood, so so assumed 
that, that it's impossible for the U.S. public to believe anything different. And that's what, that's the problem that we face. I agree. No, Gareth, I agree. And you know, here's the other side of the equation is I don't think any Americans are aware that there were Israeli terrorists, the Ergon, the Haganah. These were the folks that went into that area and created the state of Israel. And they self-identify as terrorists. So this is not some sort of anti-Semitic uh, well, said. and of so, course, it's it's not. It wasn't just in 1948. No, it, it wasn't. Place, of course, the Israelis have continued yeah. to carry out terrorism. Oh, I agree. Look uh, at and most, most and notably, yeah, and and most notably, uh, most spectacularly in um, in Lebanon. Yeah. Uh, you know, during 1982, the Israelis uh, they didn't do it themselves, but they used a Lebanese right wing phalangist. Uh, movement yeah. to carry out uh, massacres right. in two Palestinian refugee camps right. in, in um, near Beirut. So uh, you know this correct. was this was a spectacular case. Under no. Avi Schleim, go back to 1982 and what happened in Lebanon. First, where were you? In, in 1982. Um, Ariel Sharon was defense minister in Menachem Begin's government, and he was the architect of the invasion of Lebanon. Uh, and it was a war of deception because Sharon tricked his cabinet colleagues into launching this operation by pretending the aims were very limited is in fact he had a big plan to completely change the geopolitics of the region, to create a new order in Lebanon, but by helping Israel's Maronite Christian allies to come to power in Lebanon and then sign a peace treaty with Israel, then to expel the Syrian forces from Lebanon. Uh, and to replace Syrian with Israeli hegemony uh, in the Levant. Uh, this war of deception ended in tears. It didn't achieve any of its grandiose um, geopolitical objectives, and it ended also with the massacre in the uh, refugee camps of Sabra and Shatila, uh, there was an Israeli. Uh, the, 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 there was an Israeli uh, commission of inquiry, uh, which found Defense Minister Sharon as responsible for failing to prevent the massacre of the Palestinian refugees by Israel's Christian allies, um, and Sharon was forced to step down. He was fired as Minister of Defense under no, uh, Ariel Sharon, yeah. um, and and they have continued, of course, to to carry out terrorist actions uh, year in year out. So, and which is true, and you're talking about the Palestinian refugee camps that were destroyed, and that actually absolutely happened as well. So the situation is this: Americans are only told one side of the story. And they're led to believe that Israel is the victim and not the military aggressor at this point. And I have a problem with that 
because it's not factually grounded. And unless we start discussing everything that's going on on both sides of the, uh, the, two co- the conflict, we can't find peace. There is no resolution to be had. You know what I'm saying? That, that's right. And that, that means really working very hard to find alternative sources of information, um, yeah. which, which is not easy, but it's uh, for anybody who cares, this is the task that history has presented to this generation, shall we say. Maybe it's all generations, yeah, but no, uh, particularly this one. I don't yeah. disagree. So now you make a case for there being a difference between the permanent war economy business interests and other business interests in your book. And I think this is a salient discussion. Um, what is the tension that exists between these two camps? Absolutely. I mean, this is a uh, this is a fundamental problem of analysis of the permanent war state, what I call the permanent war states, and other people do as well. What used to be called the military-industrial congressional complex. That that complex, uh, which was founded during the Eisenhower administration, or even before the Eisenhower administration, um, uh, has morphed into something far more uh, demonic. Because uh, you know it, it's a it's a complex that now uh, incorporates the need to remain at war, essentially, a sort of, of not just permanent not just permanent preparation for war, but permanent war, uh, a permanent war economy. And uh, why has that happened? It's because of this combination of of the interests of the arms dealers, the arms of manufacturers, who are extremely powerful, obviously, and, and wield a major uh, role in, in the U.S. economy, um, on one hand, uh, as well as enormous influence over Congress, as everyone knows, but, but also the interests of the uh, military and intelligence bureaucracy, who are arguably the most uh, powerful uh, bureaucracy that the world has ever known because of their uh, ability to control uh, year in and year out so much of the uh, the, the national uh, uh, resources, the, the government resources that are spent every year. Um, and, and that amounts to, you know, obviously trillions of dollars every few years. So, um, so, so that translates into, you know, huge political and social power. They, they are able to influence the media because, uh, for various reasons, they, you know, they uh, are constantly uh, interacting with the media. They're constantly uh, influencing the media. They are the sources for the media. The media, uh, you know, is, is essentially forced to publish stories that they're given by the uh, the war uh, state, the, the the bureaucracy of, of war, uh, and and that shapes uh, hugely shapes the uh, public opinion in the United States. So so that's that's the first point. Then secondly, uh, you know the the military and intelligence bureaucracy are able to uh, to control the general direction of U.S. foreign policy. And they have ever since the beginning of the Cold War. They've been uh, influencing policy in the direction of preparation for war, positioning the United States uh, uh, geographically, uh, uh, geopolitically, in a way that makes war more likely uh, over and over again. I mean, I wrote a book uh, about 
why the United States ended up going to war in Vietnam, which makes the case that from the beginning, the uh, you know there were people in the CIA and the Pentagon and in the military who wanted the United States to be uh, intervening militarily in, uh, in Vietnam or to be prepared to intervene at the right moment. And Eisenhower opposed it, Kennedy opposed it, um, until he was put under terrific pressure to compromise and to, you know, have U.S. quote-unquote advisors go into South Vietnam, which, of course, he understood later on too late. It was a huge mistake. Uh, and, and LBJ opposed it until he was put under terrific pressure by this combination of the military bureaucracy, the intelligence bureaucracy, and the news media, uh, who, who were all in favor of going to war. So, so this is the problem that we face, that the huge power that the war state disposes along with their arms manufacturer allies. Yeah. And together, they formed this tight, not just an alliance, but in more recent years, over the last 10 or 15 years, it has become a single entity because the arms manufacturers have actually moved into to do their jobs within the Pentagon and within the NSA and within the CIA. So, so more and more actual jobs are occupied by contractors who work for, you know, these huge, uh, you know, uh, arms and intelligence contractor outfits that are out for their own interests. Mm -hmm. uh, the bottom line is that there are bureaucratic and economic interests that are pushing the United States constantly in the direction of preparation for war and under certain circumstances where it looks like a good bet for them to actually go to war. I mean, that that's the storyline, both in Vietnam and in Iraq. Uh, that's the storyline when, uh, when, when the military and the CIA combined to put pressure on Obama to uh, put more troops into Afghanistan when we were losing in 2010, mm -hmm. 2009-2010. It wouldn't have happened except for the pressure from those uh, bureaucracies. Uh, again, uh, with the aid of the media, who are all in favor of it. Mm -hmm. So, so we're up against. Um, I, I would argue the the most powerful combination of interests any country has ever experienced, pushing it into war. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you bring up Vietnam as a sort of a springboard for this. And I think it's important to remember, not you, I'm, I know you know this, but I think it's important for folks in general to remember that Vietnam was fighting for its independence against French colonialism. That's how the war started. Right. So, right. you know, and, and again, there were business interests involved in within the container of that colonialism, U.S. business interests. So I think it is a salient point you're making. Right. And, and let me just let me address this distinction between the business interests on one hand and the bureaucratic right. uh, bureaucratic and a com combined with business interests in the arms uh, sector. Uh, secondly, uh, because I, I do agree, of course, that business interests played a huge role in U.S. foreign policy uh, historically. Uh, if you talk about CIA intervention in Latin America and Central America, for example, that that's all about business interests. There's no question about that. That that's well documented uh, over and over again in, in Central America and Latin America. Uh, and and of course that's why 
the British wanted the CIA to overthrow Mossadegh in Iran because of their the British interest in oil. I mean, that that's very clear. But but I think once you start talking about going to war, then you have a different ballgame. Then you have a different set of interests entirely, which um, are are so huge in terms of the amount of money that's involved, the amounts of money that are involved, that you have a a great gain, if you will. Everyone's heard of the term great gain, which was the term that was used uh, you know, in, in the 19th century for the competition among the great powers, the British uh, and the Russians in particular, in Central, in Central Asia and South Asia and the Middle East. But, but what we have now is a great game that has to do not with geopolitics in regions of the world, but the great game is the national uh, budget of the United States. And it's getting a hold of those resources every year, year in and year out, and turning that into political and social power, which is uh, the, the turning of money into uh, um, you know, uh, military power that's used to continue to have more wars, uh, and, uh, of course, to use those budgets uh, to, to have the, the prestige uh, that goes with uh, having huge bureaucracies in the United States and being able to dis- dispose of influence over the news media and over other uh, institutions in this country. So, so that's that's really the biggest uh, uh, competition, the biggest game that we have regarding uh, issues of, of war and peace and foreign policy. It, it, it's not really geopolitics. Geopolitics, yes, yes, there are people who care about having power in the Far East and in the Middle East and in Latin America. But that is dwarfed by the importance of making sure that their their budget continues at a high level. Because without that, they lose their interest. That's what it's all about. Um, I want to circle back around and talk about Syria for a second, because it seems it's nothing but the bad choices on top of bad choices when it comes to Syria. And I think the United States is making it worse. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it was a bad choice from the very beginning of, of the U.S. policy under the Obama administration mm-hmm. of, of saying yes to the Saudis, the Turks, and the Qataris, who were in, you know sort of uh, saying to Obama, well, first of all, the Turks, this was hardly known by anybody, but the Turks were actually asking the Obama administration to invade Syria with U.S. troops and dispose of the Assad regime. And Obama said, no, thanks, you're not into that. Uh, and then they said, okay, we want you to, to uh, give us, uh, you know, major, uh, major weapon systems so that we can do it. And Obama said, no, to that. And so finally, the compromise was that Obama would uh, uh, allow the CIA to help uh, the Saudis acquire uh, arms uh, to, to be able to overthrow the regime and the Qataris and the Turks same. Uh, so, so the United States basically was responsible for the job of, of facilitating the supply of arms to those three countries uh, and their chosen Iraqi, excuse me, their chosen Syrian um, armed groups, which of course was ridiculous because there were no serious armed groups, and all they did was to create this huge number of competing groups that had no possibility of doing anything 
Uh, and, and there then you had the Al-Qaeda people coming in and taking over very quickly because it was like a knife through butter. Uh, and the CIA knew this, the Obama administration knew this immediately by, by 2012. So everything that they did after that was in the knowledge that they were facilitating Al-Qaeda coming into a situation where they had a chance of really taking power in Syria. And and the CIA finally, and the military finally, blew the whistle on this and said, wait a minute, we can't do this. And so then the Obama administration was saying, well, okay, we'll, we'll try to, you know, sort of uh, uh, walk a tightrope here and, and we'll... We'll make sure we don't go too far. But of course, that was absurd because you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. And, and they almost, had it not been for the Russian intervention, there's a very good chance that Al-Qaeda would have taken over Syria. I 100% agree with you, Gareth, on that. I, I'm, it's kind of disturbing to me that this whole um, discussion on Al-Qaeda doesn't get discussed very often. Yeah, and that's because, um, you know, the, the whole... You know, Counterterrorism thing was the fundamental uh, excuse for U.S. militarism in the Middle East for a uh, whole generation and more, mm-hmm. and uh, so so they had to kind of uh, keep that uh, before the public. But at the same time, their interest did not really lie in counterterrorism. It lied it lay in uh, doing other things that called for the United States to actually relax its uh, position about Al Qaeda over and over again. It did so in Iraq. And yeah. did so in, in Syria. And it then just, it did in, in Yemen as well. It's insane yeah. to me because now somebody out here listening to this is going to say you're an Assad apologist, which is fucking ridiculous, but that's where I see these folks go. And it's like nobody's saying Assad is a good guy. What we are saying is arming al-Qaeda is not a good idea and that maybe there's no good position here and taking any Correct. position at all makes it worse. <laughs> Exactly. And, and again, the CIA and the military both agreed with that. They mm-hmm. they understood that Assad was, you know, uh, was a very brutal dictator yeah. and uh, that he did very terrible things to people who he, you know, who he found opposing him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, they understood that they could not afford to have the state structure of Syria destroyed because yeah. the alternative was probably worse. going to be worse. But we've done this time and time again. We go in and we have these like regime change wars that are usually in business interests or in the permanent war economy's best interests. And we replace it with something worse. I mean, there's a legitimate slave trade in Libya now because of what we did. How is this improvement? Yeah, well, you you can find the same storyline in one way or, or another over and over again. Everywhere the United States tries to uh, go in and uh, dispose of power that requires either covert operations or military presence, mm-hmm. the United States has destabilized yeah. uh, seriously and caused that uh, that society to be subject to all kinds of horrible outcomes, including terrorism, as well as uh, all of the things that go with wars that are basically uncontrollable. Yeah. So here we are, um, which is why I'm so disturbed by so many liberals cheerleading on behalf of Bolton because they think he was fired by Trump. This is like Trump destroying your brain cells. Bolton is yes. still a war criminal, folks. Stop caping for him. Uh, uh, Mike Pompeo is still there, and he is yes. a threat. 
That's to my do next much question. of the same thing. He and Bolton were a pair, even though That's they right. were rivals and didn't like each other. They were a pair who were cooperating very closely with Israel right. together to carry out these, uh, you know, rather nefarious plans. Yeah, so Pompeo might be next on the chopping block. We'll have he to might be. see. It wouldn't Let's surprise so. me. I would be okay <laughs> with so. it. I think uh, yeah. Elliot Abrams is says he's like a war criminal too. There's so many of these folks that found new positions under the Trump administration that should never have been rehabilitated. And I'm glad that Trump's getting rid of them. I, I don't like Trump. I think he's garbage, but... But these guys are terrible, too. So liberals need to t- stop defending anybody Trump fires just because Trump fired him. There's no logic to that. <laughs> that that's absolutely <laughs> I mean, it's just it's hilarious and at the same time frightening. Yeah, I mean, it's like, come on, Trump is stealing your logic from you. Stop. So, Gareth, I wanted to ask you about a piece that was in foreign policy this week that Stephen Cook wrote. He says that since the World War II... Three core interests have shaped U.S. Middle East policy, ensuring the free flow of energy resources from the region, helping to maintain Israeli security, and making sure no state or group of states can challenge American power in a way that would put the other two interests at risk. In other words, aside from the strategic, historical, moral, and political reasons for the special U.S.-Israel relationship, oil is the reason why the United States is in the Middle East at all. Do you think Stephen Cook is right? Well, first of all, I mean, I think it's a very interesting article indeed, and uh, I, I noticed it and commented on it myself on Twitter uh, because it was so, um, so we say, provocative. Yeah. Uh, and the first reason that it was so provocative is that Cook is like representing the most extreme uh, sort of example of uh, what, what I would characterize as making excuses for U.S. wars in the Middle East mm-hmm. that are totally without foundation. I mean, the idea that we intervene uh, in uh, in Iraq um, because we were protecting the, the free flow of oil is so ridiculous that it, you know, it shouldn't even be discussed. Um, and, and so, from my point of view, the, you know, you st- the starting point here is that here's somebody representing this, um, what used to be the most elite foreign policy outfit in the country, uh, the one that had the most influence over uh, mm-hmm. over the, uh, the way people thought about foreign policy and national security, uh, now rather a faded star, but still has some influence, uh, is, is sort of staking out a claim that uh, unless we are ready to go to war with Iran, we are forsaking uh, you know, the role the United States has played in the Middle East over the last uh, 25 years or so. Mm-hmm. And nothing can be farther from the truth. So, I mean, that's the starting point. Yeah. But, um, you know, his, his idea that, uh, that Trump's refusal to retaliate against the, um, the, uh, attack in, uh, in Saudi, uh, the Saudi oil facility attack mm-hmm. is endangering U.S. security. Uh, endangering the Saudi Arabia security and uh, threatens to once destabilize the entire region again is uh, is is very uh, far-reaching set of of untruths uh, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think it does represent a still very very strong cast of mind 
within the foreign policy and national security elite, the blob, as it's been called <laughs> by some journalists and commentators, <laughs> the people who have had you know the most to say over yeah. over decades now about what what the United States ought to be doing in various parts of the world. Um, and and I think uh, you know these people are are running scared. These people are afraid that maybe we have a president who could defy them um, and not go along with their uh, with their recommendations. And so you know, hell hath no fury is, is perhaps one way of looking at it. Uh, but these people are feeling like they're losing influence and uh, lashing out. I mean, I would I would characterize this article see lashing out at uh, Trump and, um, you know, trying to generate uh, some additional pressure on him from mm-hmm. like-minded people. Um, and, and so, I, you know, it, in a way, it's kind of laughable and, and another, at another level, I think it's, um, it's significant in that it, it really portrays um, a decline in the influence of those people relative to uh, mm-hmm. the, the overall situation where I think more and more people are uh, questioning that line of thinking. Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that those people aren't still very, very powerful, because I do believe they are. Um, and, and, I, and it's worrisome. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to, to be disdainful about the threat that, that, that entire elite, uh, which, which goes deeply into the military, the Pentagon, the intelligence community, uh, the FBI and so forth. Uh, all those people um, are, are, you know, there are many, many people in those bureaucracies who hold very similar views. Yeah. Indeed, I would say that the people who went after Trump uh, in 2017 uh, created the whole idea that uh, he might be potentially, possibly, somebody who was uh, willingly or unwittingly a dupe of the uh, Russians. Uh, and, and we're prepared to carry out an FBI uh, security investigation on Trump. I think those people, yeah. you know, uh, very much participate, very, very much partake in the same sort of uh, way of thinking. So, so oh, they're absolutely. still very serious stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look at Luis Mensch and some of those folks. But the, I, I think to get at the root of what you're getting at why these folks remain the elite is because both parties embrace the same sort of nonsense, right? Yeah, it's, it's a bipartisan uh, security elite, a bipartisan group of people who have uh, you know, basically agreed on the fundamentals of U.S. foreign policy and national security mm-hmm. policy. And the disagreements are essentially over issues where one party can take advantage of uh missteps or what they can portray as missteps by the other party's uh, uh, president, and uh, to use that in order to to regain uh, the presidency. And that, that's happened repeatedly over the years, over the decades. Yeah. But behind that um, is, is absolutely a uh, pretty much um, united uh, national security elite, which uh, continues to hold sway over the media of the country, and I think that complex of power that involves both the national security elite and the media elite, and, I would add, of course, the political elite, the people who uh, dispose of power within both parties, or at least have in the past disposed of of, of, of power, decided uh, ultimately who would get to be within the uh, the, the running 
for uh, president uh, in both parties. Uh, mm-hmm. Those people have all shared uh, the same fundamental notions that the United States must maintain its hegemony throughout yeah. the world. And in the Far East and the Middle East, particularly, the United States must maintain uh, its military uh, position, its, its bases, its allies, and be prepared to go to war when necessary or when it's uh, when we're told it's necessary by right. the powers that be. Uh, and, and so that is the system that we've seen reign for many decades and which is now under strain, uh, very, very severe strain, no question about it. Under, under challenge, right. I would say. It's under challenge, but we have to keep uh, pushing these folks. I mean, I think two prime examples recently are the bloated, the astronomically bloated uh, defense budget. Out of all the Democratic candidates running for office, only two voted no. That's Bernie Sanders right. and Tulsi Gabbard. Right. Elizabeth right. Warren and everybody else voted yes on this bu- budget, and I've got a problem with it. That's the first thing. And then the second piece would be the anti-BDS resolution. So, well, you're right on, on both counts, of course, that, that the uh, elite uh, uh, leadership in both parties continues to be uh, devoted to the fundamental uh, fundamentals that have been part of this consensus over the decades. Mm-hmm. Although some of them are beginning to question. Uh, you know, the continued wars and the, the forever war, if you will, yeah. forever wars. But nevertheless, that's still some of a problem. But but I I do want to make it clear that despite the fact that I that I believe that this elite consensus that has reigned for so long uh, is uh, under pressure, that we are still facing uh, a very, very dangerous crisis over Iran because it's mm-hmm. not just about whether... The United States will retaliate for what happened in uh, hitting the Saudi oil facilities. It's also, and more fundamentally, about the uh, the sanctions, uh, economic sanctions against right. Iran, which are aimed at bringing Iran to its knees, yeah. and which are inherently, uh, if not, you know, obviously illegal under international law because this is a this is a, a sort of black area of international law and you can't point to you know what what international law is being violated it's illicit in the sense that you know it uh, attempts to deprive Iran of participation in the international economy and that is ipso facto illicit and mm-hmm. and if the if the Iranians had their act together it seems to me they could go to the World Trade Organization and bring a case against the United States. For whatever reason, and they may have good reasons for not doing that, which I don't understand. But in any case, this is clearly a violation of those fundamental uh, rules of, of international trade, uh, as well as being an obvious provocation uh, to, to Iran in the sense that no country that has the wherewithal to resist is going to put up with it. Right. No, I, I agree with you. You know, you can't keep forcing um, cooperation at the end of a gun. And this is a big problem with I have with most of the foreign policy that we engage in in the Middle East. It's, you know, there there's no way that Israel continues to go down the path it's on right. and remain right. safe. This is fundamentally a flawed argument. 
Um, let me ask you a question, though, on the Saudi oil facilities. So are you convinced yeah. that it was Iran that did this, or is this just another example of weapons of mass destruction? No, I don't think it's, I don't think it's like the 2002-2003 WMD fiasco, where, okay. uh, you know, the, the people who wanted war, who, who were determined uh, to go to war with, uh, with an, in Iraq, uh, you know, basically presented the American people with a uh, hoped, uh, hoped up, a hoaxed uh, set of propositions about uh, Iraqi WMD. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a different situation fundamentally in the sense that, uh, you know, Iran clearly has uh, not just a good good cause, but but a very strong uh, need to respond in some way to what the United States is doing, to signal to the United States that this cannot pass, this cannot go down. Um, and, and, you know, the, I, I have to tell you that originally, I believed most probably the the cases where there were limpet mines used against um, some freighters, uh, bankers, in the Persian Gulf, uh, was most likely to be a false flag attack. Uh, and, and I thought Israel was the most likely candidate, um, because at that point, it seemed to me that, that Iran had not yet signaled that it was ready to move into a confrontational phase. Now I can see that, indeed, they have moved into uh, a preliminary phase, not not yet ready to go to war, clearly. I mean, they're not, they're not fixing to go to war with the United States, but they are in a phase of signaling to the United States that it must change its policy, that it's not going to be able uh, to continue indefinitely this policy of depriving Iran of its rightful uh, foreign foreign trade receipts, uh, you know, basically uh, trying and, and pretty much succeeding in uh, taking all of Iran's um, oil exports earnings away from it, down to zero is the way it was described by Pompeo. Uh, earlier this year, uh, and and they are indeed uh, moving in that direction. They haven't gotten there yet, and they are, you know, still some billions of dollars away from that. But that is the aim, and and it's a, and it has a very serious effect on the Iranian economy. They're they're not uh, falling apart. It's not that people are on the verge of, of revolting or anything like that. But uh, but they expect the situation to get worse. The Iranians do. Mm-hmm. And and this is a very serious situation, and, and they are uh, clearly moving toward a position where they are telling the United States uh, that that we will ultimately, that they're going to make good on the threat they've made on several occasions, that we will prevent traffic through the Strait of Hormuz, uh, you know, uh, right, the, the right. oil traffic from the Saudis, the UAE using Strait of Hormuz to the rest of the world, to, to East Asia and to uh, Europe. Um, so so that is, I think, the situation fundamentally that we have uh, in the background of this. And that does not mean that, that the Iranians uh, fired the missiles from Iran. I'm not convinced of that. I don't think it's clear at all. In fact, I think the evidence now, as it begins to clarify, suggests that, that that's not what happened, that it was probably... Uh, Houthi missile and fired from either Yemen or from within Saudi Arabia, or both, possibly. Mm. And and so I, I mean I think that yeah. 
that, uh, you know, it's, it's unclear. But, it's but as I said at the beginning of, of our conversation, I think that the fundamental issue is not whether Iran was, quote, behind it or not. The fundamental question is what, why would it be unexpected and why it wouldn't be perfectly legitimate for Iran to take that, uh, that, that, you know, very strong uh, measure, but one which is still not, uh, nobody was killed, nobody was injured, and uh, the international economy can resume its functioning. Yeah, you know, I don't disagree with that, um, Gareth. I want to mention there's this uh, school of thought in international international relations about realism, which is very Mm -hmm. um, strong. Very strong, uh, muscular foreign policy, very hawkish. Uh, what I don't understand, though, because I find this to be entirely naive, why don't these folks seem to understand that at some point these other countries aren't just going to lay down and accept whatever you say? They yeah, are going yeah. to defend themselves. Um, there's going to be blowback for whatever actions we engage in. Right. Oh, that's a very important question. Glad you glad you raised it. <laughs> as a uh, as a student of international relations, I studied at the University of Chicago mm-hmm. under Hans Morgenthau, who oh. many of your listeners may be familiar with the name. He was the he was the guy who really founded uh, in the United States as a as a German refugee uh, during World War Two or mm-hmm. after World War Two. I can't remember exactly when he moved. Um, he he became the the godfather of the whole realist school of thinking about right. um, international relations and foreign policy, and and at that point uh, he had already come out against the Vietnam War, saying that a realist uh, is not just somebody who uses force whenever he feels like it. It has to be guided by genuine, legitimate internet uh, U.S. Uh, uh, interests, uh, vital interests. And, and Vietnam was not a vital interest. We did not face a real, a genuine threat uh, to peace and security in, in the region, much less the world. <laughs> uh, and so, so from that, I, I basically derive uh, the view that that realism has to include uh, the the notion that you must limit the use of force and indeed the the commitments that you make. To going to war, to genuine threats uh, to security, mm-hmm. and and that is not what the United States has been doing for no. many many decades. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan are all cases where, uh, in fact, the United States did not need to go to war. It could have used other means. It could have used diplomacy to better uh, defend the the genuine legitimate interests of the United States, and so. Uh, I think that, in fact, one should be a realist, but only in the sense that Morgenthau intended it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way most ordinary people think of it. And mm-hmm. that, that the the people who we've just been talking about, the blob, if you will, the they, they are embracing something very different, which is U.S. hegemony. And that is not realist. No, that they're neoconservatives, at all, at all. yeah. I think the neoconservatives, yeah. I call them neoists because the neoliberals and the neoconservatives are more or less the same blob, in my opinion. Um, well, I, you know, I think I think that's that's true, um, and but but I think the problem is not limited to, to certainly not to the uh, to the neoconservatives. Uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the neorealists, if you will, uh, right. embrace uh, embrace a broader set of interests than those that have to do with uh, you know the the uh, the people that got us into Iraq. 
Um, but, but in any case, I mean, there, there are variations on the theme. And uh, the, the real fundamental problem here is the United States must learn to forego the idea of, of having hegemony, of having military dominance everywhere in the world, and particularly in the Middle East right now. And, and look, I mean, part of the problem here, uh, bringing it back to the immediate situation, is that I think the United States government has been taken by surprise by Iran, uh, that, that Iran has yeah. uh, now the capability to resist U.S. use of force in a way that it did not have a decade or two ago. And, and I think it came faster than the United States government was really prepared for. I mean, they, they thought they still had more time to, uh, to basically mm-hmm. carry out the kinds of policies that they've been carrying out for the last 25 years in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't. They run out of time. They run out of time. Would you say that the switch <clears throat> that happened between like a post-World War II realist view of international relations versus all of these sort of neoist ideas has to do with the inclusion of American empire in the sense that we're now discussing corporate interests, business interests abroad? Well, uh, you know, it is an empire, no question about it. <laughs> the question of exactly what kind of empire still, uh, from my point of view, is it remains to be uh, studied carefully and redefined, because mm-hmm. I think the empire that we've seen building uh, since World War II uh, fundamentally, this is a military empire. It's an empire of bases, of, of allies, and of, of military commitments uh, that uh, has continued to evolve over the last uh, 25 years, particularly in the Middle East, as mm-hmm. the United States has acquired new, uh, new uh, uh, bases, new interests, new allies uh, that uh, basically are... are uh, an excuse, if you will, or, or if you don't regard it as an excuse, maybe a uh, a new set of forces that uh, could cause the United States to enter into a war, and uh, and that is the fundamental problem. I mean, corporate interests simply don't enter into this. I mean, in fact, uh, if you go back to the beginning of the uh, U.S. process of of uh, turning Iran into a a pariah back in the 1990s, in the 1990s, mm-hmm. when the first uh, economic sanctions against Iran were passed by Congress, why did it happen? It happened because APAC, the pro-Israel uh, lobby in Washington, mm-hmm. uh, carried out a very, very big campaign yeah. in Congress to make this happen. Very successful campaign. At one point, they had a 415 to 0 uh, vote in the House of Representatives. I mean, how can that happen? I mean, that, that's an amazing, that's an amazing phenomenon. They're a powerful so, so lobby it, group. Yes, a very powerful lobby group, and, and it's all about campaign finance. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was how they brought this about, and that has led, uh, you know, to a series of, uh, you know, renewal. There is a renewal of that uh, Iran Sanctions Act in 2007, which is still in, in effect. Um, and you had then the whole suite of uh, of sanctions programs that took place uh, supposedly because of the Iranian nuclear program, which, as we've already talked about, is based on a, a myth, a, a set of, of overlapping false narratives surrounding uh, surrounding the Iran nuclear program. Right. So all of this fits together 
uh, to constitute a new set of factors that has added on top of the, the military interests in having more bases, uh, more allies. Uh, all this is good for the bottom line. The, the, the basic factor in this is fundamentally is uh, about uh, ensuring that the, there will never be again a crisis such as faced the military-industrial congressional complex over the end of the Cold War in, in 1989-1991. And so how do they do it? Well, I mean, if, uh, if you really look into it historically, as I have, you find that uh, that the Secretary of Defense uh, under George H. W. Bush uh, was was clever enough uh, to to take us into war uh, in the Gulf against Saddam Hussein when we didn't really need to do that at all. It was totally unnecessary. Um, and what did that do? It re it sort of reinforced the argument that the United States must be prepared to uh, to go to war in the Middle East and. That's going to be the future war, as that Secretary of Defense uh, suggested after the successful Gulf War. I mean, you remember who that Secretary of Defense was? Uh, None other than Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney, that's it, right. It was Dick Cheney. It was Dick Cheney. Yeah. In his first uh, uh, his first appearance on the scene as that's the right. guru of of interventionism, uh, particularly in the Middle East. Um, and so, I mean, that, that's really, uh, to me, that's, that's the fundamental phenomenon that we're up against here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a matter of, of the military, the Pentagon, CIA, the intelligence community, uh, and all of the interests in the Congress who are uh, engaged either because they're uh, supporting uh, Israel uh, or because they're supporting the, the, the Pentagon's uh, budget uh, and getting very... Uh, handsomely supported by by Pentagon uh, contractors, uh, or both, of course. There's no contradiction between the two. They can also coexist. But uh, but this is the this is a combination of interests that have uh, basically propelled us into a series of wars since 1991. Mm-hmm. So what about China? Is is China being made into our new Cold War enemy? What what are your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. I mean, this is the big change that took place in the Pentagon's budget, which people need to understand and right. and do something about uh, in in early 2018. Because what happened was that the the gurus of the of the Pentagon, the the heavy yeah. thinkers, the, the strategists, uh, realized that counterterrorism wasn't good enough to maintain high levels of budgetary spending. The, the levels to which they had become accustomed, if you will, right? Uh, they saw a long-term trend uh, that it was fading out. It was going down. So what did they do about that? They had to elevate Russia and China, the peer competitors, as they call them, uh, into the main threat. And, and so ever since then, you've had a new uh, set of, uh, of, of adversaries with Russia and China as Number one and number yeah. two sort of tied as well for one and two. And then behind them comes Iran and North Korea. And so the budget has to reflect this new concatenation, this new order of, of, of significance or, or order of threat, if you will, mm-hmm. according to the, the Pentagon's thinkers. And that means that what they're doing now is spending much, much more 
on preparing for war with Russia and China. Because that gives you the big ticket items, the big time spending on future weapon systems, big weapon systems, and big programs. And that was the reason why this happened. So, so uh, Iran, relatively speaking, is fading out as a mm-hmm. as a reason for spending money, um, and Russia and China are rising, and and that's what we're going to see in the coming years. And and you know the people who are doing the heavy thinking for the Pentagon, the Rand Corporation specifically, right. I'm thinking Rand. about, is putting out one study after another, saying we must be prepared for war with Russia and China. We're not prepared. We must spend much more. And of course, that you know, that's because that's what's demanded of them from the Pentagon. That's where they get their their money from the Air yeah. Force, particularly. Yeah, I mean, Rand Corporation has been just involved from this stuff for so long. Folks will remember them from the Pentagon Papers, and yet, no matter what sketchy stuff they're involved with, they're still held in high esteem by what you call the blob. <laughs> Right, right. So, so coming back for a moment, just circling back to 1995-96, which is yeah. when APAC carried out this uh, this campaign to get the sanctions against Iran, the first round of sanctions. Uh, you know, the fact is that the corporate community was very much opposed to those sanctions because they hoped to move into to move into Iran with mm-hmm. lots of new uh, lots of new investments, particularly, of course, in the in, uh, the energy sector of Iran. Which was the which was opening up for the first right. time, big time, and and this was cut off by the sanctions, and uh, that meant that some very large corporations, particularly oil uh, and uh, gas, and and the whole energy sector of the United States, was prevented from a very lucrative uh, set of investments in Iran. Right. So this is the tension that you talk about when you talk about the yes. difference between the permanent war economy business interests and other business interests. Sometimes right. they're not aligned. Right. right. But the, and, and again, the same thing happened in the late 1990s and early 2000s over China. Yeah. Because uh, the, the business sector was very much interested in moving into uh, much more lucrative uh, arrangements mm-hmm. uh, with trade and investment in China. Mm-hmm. And the, on the other hand, the, the military-industrial uh, congressional complex was interested in trying to uh, up the ante with regard to military spending against China. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where uh, the other major contradiction, really, in terms of the amount of money at stake, uh, an even bigger contradiction just between these two sets of interests. Right. So what are you working on now? You have a new book you're working on? Well, yes, I'm working on a book uh, on the Iran crisis, and and it's supposed to be a short book and with a very short timeline, and I'm already behind (laughs) schedule finishing it. Um, It's going to be uh, co-authored with John uh, Kiriakou um, and uh, published by Skyhorse Books, um, and uh, they were hoping to bring it out by the end of the year. I don't know if that's going to happen now. Uh, And, you know, in part, of course, because so much has been happening, that changes the narrative, <laughs> and, and right. which I think it's very important to respond to and to analyze. Yeah, it's changing daily. Yes, so, yes. Gareth, um, I know you need to get back to your writing. I wanted to um, ask you to leave your Twitter handle, though, with the listeners if they want to follow you. Yes, of course. Um, you know, my, my Twitter handle is at uh, Gareth Porter. Uh, that's it. So it's G A R E T H. E T 
H P O R T E R. Excellent. 